40 years, when they're confronted, they go, I can't believe you're upset. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're listening, or you're listening to Trilateral Commission and Technocracy with Patrick Woods. Um, beyond Belief. Uh, where's the, um, the write-up? Okay, try to blah, 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 blah. Trying to read the write-up for you. Comments. Technocracy power concentrated in the hands of the few. What could go wrong? If the cabal succeed in technocracy, whereby there is no paper money or, or checks to be used, once the power goes off by whatever means and money cannot be obtained to take care of ourselves, that is similar to starting a world disaster problem response solution, a new world order. In the UK, the UK government signed an act of parliament in 2014 not publicized, giving them the right to take our money out of the banks if the government needs it. Whoa. Wow. I actually believe technocracy under the right leadership and election systems makes a lot of sense. Property ownership is insane. Who are we to make claim to any piece of land? This is great in a sick illusion. Well, all men's, all men's lands, all men's rete. It's a Swedish concept, but all men's rights, Every everyone has... Um, claim to the land. The land is ours, all of us. Okay. So like in Sweden, because of the almonds that you can, if you need to sleep out, uh, there's a farm or something. You just, it just, um, you have the right to, uh, you know, you can, you can crash there on the farm, I can sleep. I actually believe technocracy... Okay, wait, wait, wait. We don't own this earth. We are part of it. If anything, it owns us. This means... This man's ideas, while I'm sure are well-intentioned, he doesn't see the big picture, and that is the world is uniting in ownership, inheritance, all of these things create the gross income inequality. Famine, poverty, environmental disasters, etc. Basically agreed. I will say that we are not ready for this economy yet, maybe on 50, 50 years, but our collective education of the population must be raised higher than where it is. It's an idea that can grow as our conscious evolution grows. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Yep. It's easy for you white privileged men to think that the end of private property and physical cash is the worst thing that can happen. It's... It's going to take another generation before you guys are gone and we can move forward into a better future. <laughs> Private property, hoarding, saving, passing wealth on to the next generation sounds like today's oligarchy to me. I would much prefer a group of technocrats who care about humanity and all life oh, on this planet. The millennials have it right, access to resources and caring about the entire community. This guy is still propagating the idea of tribalism in order for the world to move forward. Tribalism has to be eliminated. The world must view itself as one planet. The idea of capitalist utopia is a false promise. It creates a divide. The idea of capitalism as a savior of mankind is false. Social democracies are doing better, are healthier, better educated, safer. What this guy is propagating is a complete false idea. It's this very thinking that is creating the real danger in the U.S. and other countries. Yes, I went on here to comment against this man's views, and I'm happy to see others are doing the same. It's just an old conservative, stale way of thinking that will not solve the problems we are facing. 
important information to share. Thank you, Patrick and George. Let's hope people don't behave like lobsters in warm water, not noticing the change, because it happens gradually a little bit at a time. We need to wake up before it's too late. Personally, I prefer cash. Enjoyed it and hadn't heard much on this before, but triggered some memories of things during the 70s that rang true. Patrick Wood has always been entertaining good stuff. George, I would like to see you interview the creator of the Brilliant Deep State Mapping Project with emphasis on the cult of ball, philosophy, and map. Seems brilliant to me. Deep State Mapping Project com deep state mapping project dylan lewis monroe several brilliant dot connecting maps including a great awakening map quote no one said taking out a six thousand year old death cult would be easy <laughs> maps are really organizational charts thanks for all you do george bless your heart this is a super interview and explains so much in an easy to understand discussion Sickening stuff, and there's nothing good about the global city in which family doesn't apparently exist. Even more important is the agenda of the globalists to import low IQ third worlders in an apparent attempt to replace native populations, which is not mentioned here. Thank you, George. Another great episode. Great. Thank you, George. Okay. Um. New, uh, I could count on guy viewers to, uh, to tell us what's really up. I'm, uh, I have a, I have a podcast, aka that's what up, that's what up show. Um, and I, and I, and I, um, and I treat Gaia shows as, uh, as, uh, discussion groups. Check it out. Thanks, Gaia. Best programming in the universe. Programming in the universe. You can use that slogan. Smiley face. Okay, so let's uh, let's pull up and listen to listen to this show wow. i'm gonna do some gardening while i'm listening to this yeah yeah trilateral commission and technocracy with patrick woods Welcome to Beyond Belief. I'm George Nori. Our special.
guest today is Patrick Wood. Patrick is an author, lecturer who has studied elite globalization policies since the late 1970s. To this day, you... remains a leading expert on the elitist trilateral their policies, their achievements, and what they do. Patrick, welcome to the program. How long have you been studying this? Truly since the 70s? Truly since the 1970s, George. It's been a long trip. It is. And I'm not done with my mission, apparently, because I'm still here and I'm still You're talking still, about it. And they're still letting you talk about it. They're still letting me talk about it as well. How did you get involved in this? I ran into a gentleman, a professor, uh, had just been separated from the Hoover Institution at Stanford. His name was Anthony Sutton. He was a research fellow. And he was studying the Trilateral Commission while at Hoover, not realizing that the president of Stanford University was a member of the Trilateral Commission. Okay. They didn't want him studying, uh -huh. especially with the Hoover Institution, this topic. So they kind of forced him out. And I ran into him at a gold conference down in, in um, uh, Louisiana. Um, kind of by chance on one hand, I don't think it was chance personally, but I ran into him at a, at a restaurant at a, at a convention we were mm -hmm. attending. We struck up a conversation, realized that we were both kind of looking at the same group. This is 1977. Uh -huh. And before that breakfast was done, we had sh shaken hands that we needed to tell a story, that it was that big. And so we started to publish a newsletter. We eventually published two books, Trilatos Over Washington. And we, gosh, we spoke on hundreds of radio programs around the country yeah. and in-person groups and stuff to try and elevate the, the discussion. How many That's people what, believe it? Well, you know, pretty much everybody that heard us in person believed our material because it was very factual. We only took the information from the Trilateral Commission itself and their own people. Uh, we analyzed it, wrote about that. But as far as, um, you know, people who hadn't heard us in person, um, the members of the Trilateral Commission did a very good job of marginalizing us as either the far right or the far left. Right. Or they didn't know which we were, right. the, but it didn't matter to them. It left them always in the modern middle. That's right. And we were always either swept off this way or this way as being irrelevant to the discussion. Now, the folks who are watching this program right now have probably heard of the Trilateral lateral commission but they may not know what it is what is it well it was an elite organization for sure founded by david rockefeller and zbigniew brzezinski in 1973. Uh -huh. the membership was drawn from japan north america and europe in roughly equal numbers uh there were government officials represented uh, lots of uh, uh scholars law firms scholars multinational corporation directors, wealthy. CEOs, stuff like that, very wealthy money people. Uh, those were kind of the, the global merchants of the day. Mm -hmm. And there was a few uh, press people as well, like Time Magazine, Newsweek, and so on, that were part of it. And uh, they came together ostensibly to create a new international economic order. That was on their literature. and. That's ultimately what piqued my interest. We wrote a lot about that back then. What was the new international economic order? And what was the goal? What was the goal of it? Sutton and I didn't really get it back then because we didn't understand historic technocracy. Had we understood it and studied it, I'm sure we would have put the dots together at that point. But I really didn't discover 
historic kleptocracy until after Professor Sutton passed in 2002, mm -hmm. and um, picked up the trail again. Okay, well, this this is how this is what they had in mind back then. But both Brzezinski and Rockefeller were kind of the cream of the crop, the the, the beauty and the beast. Brzezinski was the brains. And but he was the, had the money. He was the Carter administration, right? He was very instrumental throughout the Carter uh, administration. But during that administration, Carter inducted almost a third of the of the U.S. membership of the Trilateral Commission into his cabinet. Hmm. At based one on, time, based on Brzezinski's recommendation. Based on probably. Brzezinski's recommendation, yeah. exactly. Uh, Brzezinski was the first appointee, by the way, and, and both Carter and, and Mondale were members of the commission as well. But Brzezinski was the first appointee to National Security Advisor. He was a gatekeeper to the president. Yeah, he was, exactly. Now, what is technocracy? Technocracy was a system, an economic system, developed in the 1930s by a group of scientists and engineers at Columbia University. There was talk about technocracy during the 20s, but it kind of formally got together officially, if okay. you will, in 1932 at Columbia University. So it's been around a long time. A long time ago. That was during the Great Depression. Everybody thought capitalism was dead, and the scientists and engineers at Columbia uh, felt like it was up to them to save the world. So they modeled a an economic system from the ground up to be a resource-based economic system controlled by energy. And you have to understand, this, is, this had never been attempted in the history of the world. There had never been an economic system developed from scratch. For the world. For the world. But they did. And it fizzled, I have to say. By the end of the, certainly by the mid-40s, it, it fizzled. World War II is well underway, and uh, capitalism revived. Now, was the Federal Reserve part of any of this? Oh, it was all there during during that period of time, of course, that. still running the capitalist system. All right. Uh, that's one of the reasons, I suppose, that, that technocracy didn't quite make it as far as they hoped. But um, it didn't. That was a good thing. It went underground for a period of time during the 40s and the 50s and even into the 60s. But when Brzezinski wrote his seminal book called Between Two Ages, America's Role in the Technotonic Era. Brzezinski was a professor at Columbia University. Mm -hmm. Is that a coincidence? Maybe. But, you know, the halls of academia talk about stuff. They talk about the history of the university and what, you know, what happened and so on. So there's no doubt in my mind that Brzezinski had an awareness of exactly what technocracy was. Well, let's take a look at technocracy. You bet. Technocracy advocates argue the democratic system is unprofessional, overly politicized, corrupt, and ineffective. A society managed by scientists and engineers would be more rational and productive. Singaporeans handed rule of their society to a one-party technocracy, and it's an economic powerhouse with the second busiest port and the third highest per capita income in the world. Ukraine's outgoing economy minister called technocracy the only hope for lasting change two years after the 2014 revolution, when people were growing tired of the slow pace of reform. 
I think we really need to use this opportunity to bring in a completely different, you know, uh, set of people with a completely different uh, mindset. In 2011, both Rome and Athens installed Prime Ministers with expertise in economics and finance that drive through tough austerity measures. Technocracy does have its proponents. Pew Research shows that while there's a global preference for representative democracy, the next best option is a system where experts, not elected politicians, call the shots. Praised as the answer to populism and political bickering, more often than not, technocracies are temporary solutions. Their skills complement whatever crisis a nation is facing, or they act as a caretaker until the next election. But with democracy under attack, can unelected experts rescue a faltering system? Patrick, this kind of reminds me of a new world order. Well, you could call it that. Uh -huh. uh, it's been called that, in fact, for now for 45 years. Uh, the Trilateral Commission started off by calling it the new international economic order. In 1992, George H.W. Bush, who, by the way, was a member of the Trilateral Commission, go figure, famously said the new world order. That was the first time a member of the Trilateral Commission had deviated from new international economic order. But ever since then, people have referred to the new world order the idea is that the, the New World Order is not just some kind of a new political scheme. It's a new economic system that they're trying to foist upon the world that's not natural. It's not a natural thing at all. With the U.S. dollar being the staple currency. Well, the U.S. dollar has been, but as we'll perhaps cover a little bit, a little bit later, the whole idea of financing this new system um, probably Financial technology is going to have a big part to play in that. Sure and that means things like blockchain currencies, okay. uh, blockchain technology, uh, other advanced forms of payment systems, and, and so and on. Blockchain's having a difficult time. Right now. <laughs> you know. That's right, Patrick. What's going to change with our four hundred one k's? What will happen to them? If technocracy wins, private property is going to be out the window. That means. Your personal wealth, gone. gone. The property that you may own and title, gone. The rights enough have been taken away where basically it's gone. Your right to save and accumulate money in order to pass on to your children and grandchildren, there will be no inheritance. Basically, each generation will be kept by itself, if you will, cradle to cradle. What a horrible way to live. Not a good way to live. This is certainly not the way that America has been developed over the last 250 years, where we value private property and the ability to create savings and the ability to create inheritance for our children. It's inconceivable that any group of people would consciously work to destroy private property in America that would deny us all of those benefits and abilities. And get away with it. And get away with it. George Soros, is he part of this group? He was never a member of the Trilateral Commission directly. Um, many of his policies have played into yeah, the policy. to be like his policy. That's right. But we, we could have said that of a lot of people. Maurice Strong, for instance, the famous or infamous Canadian yes. that was um, very prominent in the United Nations, a, a, a billionaire, but he was very prominent with the, um, the 1992 Earth Summit, for instance, mm -hmm. uh, that met in Rio de Janeiro. 
um, Maureen Strong was not a member of the Trilateral Commission. Did he play into the policies? Absolutely possible. What if they were like the puppet masters, where maybe they were controlling the strings, they weren't part of the Trilateral Commission directly, mm -hmm. but they're up there with the They're all on the same, they're certainly all on the same train track. We can say that for sure. I think, you know, I've tried to think through the idea of a puppet master where somebody is kind of pulling all the strings individually. Mm -hmm. This is way bigger than that, I think, George. It's, it, it, it's been set in motion with a philosophy behind it, a, a religious proposition almost, if you will, where this is the standard that's set. This is the channel that you operate within. Step out of it, we're going to hammer you. Stay within it. You're fine. Everything's going to be good. And leaders, too. That's right. And then you have someone like Saddam Hussein who steps out of it. Look what happens. Gaddafi steps out of it. That's right. You know, Gaddafi was not a Boy Scout by any means, but no. he did change <laughs> toward the end. Yes. And uh, out he went. Yes. What's their goal? What do they want? As, as far as I can tell, and I, uh, honestly, I've studied this back for a long way, you know, even before I knew about technocracy. The idea that the Trilateral Commission first started with, which is fully in sync with technocracy today, is to capture the resources of the world. Take them out of yours and my hand and put them into a global common trust so that they can draw from it themselves for, the but exclude, for themselves, but exclude us from having any drawing rights, if you will, to that. To that property. And they would give us whatever they wanted, like crumbs. That's basically it. It, it kind of looks a little bit like feudalism from the Dark Ages, and I think it would be as ugly as that. But here's the thing. Property rights, for instance, with Agenda 21 starting out with the Earth Summit in 1992, property rights have been under massive attack around the world, and especially in the United States. They wrote plainly. Here. In the Agenda 21 document, that was the United Nations that produced that, Sustainable Development, that property, private property, was a concept that needed to go away, that nobody needed or deserved to own private property. Well, that's what's made America great, George. Absolutely. And, and emerging countries that have duplicated what we're yes. doing. Exactly right. The war here is not political, it's economic. When you strip away the right for, of people to own property, what are they left with? Isn't that a communist state? It's worse than communism, in my opinion. Uh, it's been mislabeled communism. Uh, let's say it's both, both systems are collectivist and, in the sense that you know, nobody's really going to have any say individually in what they're going to do. Yet these globalists will own all kinds of property, won't they? That's right. They will own and control the, ma the major resources of the world. And we see this in America, for instance. People say, well, how does that apply in America? Well, 36% right now of American landmass is owned by the government. That's huge. That's an important uh, statistic for me to memorize. 36%. That's um, <clears throat> 36% of our resources that aren't being used for our purposes. That the basically the government's officials are hoarding, keeping away from us. There should be no homelessness. That's Share huge. Their wealth. Why do they need to own that kind of property? The Constitution does not huge. allow that. Doesn't permit it at all. But they own it. And in fact, in the West, it's even it's worse than it is in the East. 
um, and you look at a map of Nevada, it's almost all red where, you know, it's owned by the federal government. And if you go and protest, you get arrested. That's right. You can get arrested real quick. Yeah. What's their game plan? What do they really want here? The resources of the world. As I said, the way to get to it, sort of using force, just... Which they Occup would. Which, uh, yeah, sort if of. They you, had to. You know, bringing in the tanks and stuff like that. Get rid of um, guns. And the guns, all that kind of stuff. Short of that, it's basically tricking nations into giving up their resources voluntarily. Would you call the Trilateral Commission almost like a corporation and that these members are board of directors? Well, David Rockefeller <clears throat> himself called it a cabal in his book Memoirs. Yeah. His memoirs, his autobiography. And I think that's a good term. I wouldn't call it a corporation in the sense that it had a, an organization chart, you know, a balance sheet, stuff mm -hmm. like that. But it was a cabal. Wait, is there a chairman of the board? Well, um, you know, the executive director for many years was Zbigniew Brzezinski, and they've had others since then. But um, he marched to their tune, didn't he? Well, definitely. Yeah. Well, he was instrumental in forming the whole philosophy from day one. Richard Gardner wrote a book called The Road, The Hard Road to the World Order. Was he right? He was right. Richard Gardner was an original founding member of the Trilateral Commission. He was a professor. Um, well-intentioned? Of political science. I don't think he was well-intentioned, uh -huh. but, but he came off that way. He came off being genteel. He tricked people. But he wrote this article uh, called The Hard Road to World Order for Foreign Affairs Magazine, which was the official magazine of the Council on Foreign Relations. Okay. And he wrote in this that the old-fashioned frontal assault was just not effective on changing the system of things. And there had been frontal assaults during the 40s, 50s, and 60s that had failed, where the global elite just flat up came short, they were rejected, um, and they had to start over again, back to the drawing board. And they hated it, didn't they? And, yeah, they didn't like that. But they, when they finally woke up and smelled the coffee, uh, what Gardner concluded was we need to do an end run around national sovereignty rather than trying to confront it head on. The end run would chip away little by little over a period of time to degrade national sovereignty to the point where it would just disappear, mm -hmm. just dissolve into the ether, if you will. And that's exactly what happened. It's been death by a thousand cuts. Interesting. And we've had so many of these little things over the years that have happened that have just chiseled, chiseled, chiseled away at national sovereignty. America does not look at all like a 1970s America. No, not at all. And it's did, still changing. Right? Did we have a constitutional convention? No. Did we have a brand new political system? Not really. But it's changed. And this is why. How realistic is the application of control by them, taking control of resources and things like that. The surprise, in my opinion at this point, the surprise, if there is a surprise, the element of control is not direct control of people controlling people, people over people. Technology has grown up now around society to where society is being controlled now by the technology that's being used by these people via artificial intelligence, via algorithms, if mm -hmm. you will, to make decisions for you that you can't get loose from. 
And this whole idea, the, the, the idea of globalization being a system, uh, is really the thing that we should be focusing on right now. It is the system. It's not that there's a person that's, con that's pulling a string, but the system that's being built is globalization itself. Patrick, where does China, for example, fit into the scheme of things? China is a classic, classic example of technocracy. To itself. To itself. China was brought back into the, the global village, if you will, by Zbigniew Brzezinski. You can go back and read the documents. It's very clear. Brzezinski was the point man that brought China back in. Was Kissinger part of that plan? Kissinger was before, got a little bit before that. He was instrumental. Yeah. But it was, and, and Kissinger was a member of the commission as well. Of course. Okay. But Brzezinski was a guy who single-handedly almost negotiated to bring China back into the international fold. As he did that, the initial investments, the initial companies that went to China to build infrastructure for them, were all members connected one way or another to the Trilateral Commission. It was their global companies that went over there. It was their global of consultants course. that went over there and taught the Chinese how to do it. Case in point, Bechtel Engineering, a private engineering mm -hmm. company, one of the biggest in the world, based in San Francisco, when it was illegal to do business in China for American company, I mean illegal, Bechtel had already conducted 18 major infrastructure programs in China. Wow. How'd they get away with that? They skated. The chairman of Bechtel was a member of the Trilateral well, Commission. Of course. They gave him the deal. They gave him the deal. And he got deals like that before it was even legal to have and weren't deals. weren't they also huge in Saudi Arabia? They were. Yeah. Absolutely. They had lots of money there with the king. But, but here you have, you say, well, how did China become a technocracy? Did, did they somehow they get a kickstart from the trilateral crowd, and then they went off on their own and said, oh, we have some new ideas here. Mm -hmm. We'll do this. That, that's not the way the world works. When companies put billions of dollars into you, they expect results. They expect you to do things their way, right? Is our military working for us or the Trilateral Commission? That's been questionable, George, for a very long time. Exactly. The, the neocon establishment you can trace it back well into you know World War One even the people that have promoted war and because war is profitable business and things get destroyed in war that needs to be rebuilt there's lots of money in war and I wouldn't say automatically that the Trilateral Commission is controlling the wars in the current age although Robert McNamara for instance he was prosecuted who prosecuted the Vietnam War, uh -huh. who was also called a technocrat of, of the, the Ford Whiz Kids, right? McNamara was a member, an early member of the Trilateral Commission. How about Dick Cheney? Absolutely. He's a member. Absolutely. It's a club. Crooks. It's a club beyond club a club. Crooks. It's a club with a mission. As I said, club with a mission. Uh, uh, Rockefeller himself yeah, called it a cabal. And he said... If that's the charge against me, I'm proud of it. And so be it. So be it. <clears throat> what are global cities? Global city is one that has global trading status with other cities, other global cities around the world. These are typically the largest cities that we have, like Tokyo, 
like uh, London, like New York City, Los Angeles, Seattle, uh -huh. so on, Paris. These are the first tier cities that have created an infrastructure where they're not only connected together, but at multiple layers together. You have multiple industries within those cities that are connecting with each other in these other global cities. Let's take another look at that. I am alive, vibrant with possibilities, a magnet for young creative talent, the engine for a knowledge economy, a river runs through me. There are many tributaries to my capital flows. I am an urban regenerator, a startup incubator, a creator of new opportunities, the catalyst for technological innovation, a laboratory for creative ideas. I am ever evolving, fusing the ancient with the modern, a transforming digital infrastructure. My social networks as diverse as my population. I am a host to opportunity, a home to establishment, a seat of academic learning, a cultural hub, a tech city, a de-zoned, nice people and ideas. I am the future, a millennial possibility, a corporate HQ, a growing business idea, an Olympic destination, an investment opportunity. I I'm a global city. It sounds great, <laughs> but yeah, but and there's a big but there, isn't there? Well, there's a big there is a big but to this. There's the core idea but. that's kind of swimming underneath all of our preconceived ideas of nationalism. Mm -hmm. The global elite believes that nationalism is bad. They hate it. They don't like it, even though they but, reside in this country. Most it, well, even though they reside, they have to reside in some country. Sure. Maybe, maybe it's Europe, but the same thing over there. They don't like the concept of the nation state. Let me tell you why. You need to kind of think down into their head. The business people, the, the corporate masters, if you will, are seeking to create a perfect supply chain around the world for them to conduct business. Mm -hmm. Supply chain is a concept that's kind of matured in the last 25 years. It's like gluing everything together so that everything fits just perfectly. When you are making a car, you want that wheel to show up at your factory five minutes before the starter puts it in, puts you know, roll it right without in. Without any delay. For anything. So they, no delay, no inventory, no warehouses, just get it there. The supply chain is the mantra behind everything here. Everything's designed now to go for the supply chain. National governments stand in the way of corporations doing what they want to do to create the supply chain. The nation state is opposed, if you will. They want to regulate everything. Right. They want to get their fingers into everything, right? That's unacceptable to the global elite. Answer, do away with the concept of the nation state, at least effectively for regulation. Turn it all back over to the corporations. Turn it back over to the cities turn the cities into smart cities, if you will, mm -hmm. where they're all controlled by sensors, by algorithm, whatever, and hook the cities together in order to form the perfect supply chain between the cities. Because that's worldwide. where they, Worldwide. That's where the business takes place. Paris, London, New York, Hong Kong, Tokyo, 
all these cities, these global cities, it's where the business takes place in, in the world. So connecting them together directly, getting rid of all the federal regulation along the way, has been a goal since the Trilateral Commission was formed. How close are they getting to that goal? They're very close. At this point, there's nothing to stop them except for the people themselves. And I'll have to say, um, anybody who's been watching the news recently has seen the, uh, the rather massive riots taking place in Europe with the so-called so yellow vest. Mm -hmm. The protests started against carbon tax. Yes. And the people said, we've had it. Enough is enough. We've had it with you people. Enough is enough, and you're not going to get away with it. We see this spreading to other countries in Europe. We saw it a little bit in Brexit. We saw it a little bit in the language and rhetoric of our current administration with President Trump. Will the people win in the long run? It's a tough call, Pat. This is the question, because the people, by and large, the people still don't understand. But when it gets into their pocketbook, right, and they start to feel the noose around uh -huh. their neck, that's when they start kicking back and resisting. The fact that anybody is resisting is a good thing, I think. As long as nobody dies. As long as nobody dies. Yeah, that could be the next step. That's the problem. Yeah. We don't, you know, Mass heaven forbid that, that we would have a civil war in this country or anywhere else for that matter. By the way, uh, Mr. T. Rump himself was tweeting in favor of a, of a uh, civil war, um, uh, which should be considered a type of uh, inciting violence and uh, insurrection. And also, he told the, he wanted to ha uh, shoot BLM protesters in the knees. Those, those are uh, two gray headlines that everybody should be aware of. Mr. T. Rump. Basically a fucking fascist. And, uh... Y'all need to call Congress, 202-224-3121, memorize that number, and demand that there are criminal insurrection charges against Mr. T. Rom and uh, all of his fucking cabinet ministers who, who didn't uh, drop out, and even those that did. They dropped out so that they wouldn't be uh, held accountable for the shit that he was gonna he was trying to do. And ironically, it was military leaders, officials. Thank you. First time I've uh, fucking thanked uh, military folk for uh, doing something right. <clears throat> And that is to turn down Mr. T. Rump and his attempts to attempts to uh, implement martial law in this country so that he could reinstall himself president. Okay. Y'all need to pay attention. Matter that more people would die. You know, we can complain about war all we want. It's not going to do away with war. That's right. What are smart cities? Smart city, by definition, is the application of quote-unquote smart technology on top of society that within okay, a city. It appears great, doesn't it? It makes you think it's good. Well, it's like the United Nations promises to end poverty. 
to have jobs for everyone with dignity, to have lifelong learning opportunities. You see that kind of rhetoric. Medical help for the world. Medical help for the world. It's the promise of utopia. Can they deliver utopia? No, they can't. They've never been able to deliver utopia. But the idea of smart cities today is to take advanced technology and turn the city into a living laboratory that could be managed, again, by algorithm, by artificial intelligence, that could be managed by the people that run the city. Now, when you deal with smart technology, we're dealing with what specifically? Somebody in some computer room somewhere? Let me give you lights. Let, let me give you an example on China. China now has said by 2020, two years from now, they will have installed 600 million facial recognition cameras. Yes, everywhere. Throughout the country. Everywhere. This is a country that has 1.4 billion people. So that was a camera for every two people. That's one camera yeah. for every two and a half people. They could find you from the time the order is put out to say, find George Nori. We want George Nori in here to ask him some questions. Yeah. That usually is not a good thing, right? Not there. Not there. But when they push the button to find George Nori, they can find you, they say, within two to three minutes. Jeez. They if put my the face street. into the system, yes, just, and then the camera finds me. That's right. The camera will. The cameras will identify you around the country. There he is. He walked into his apartment. That's right. His house. That's right. So this kind of you, uh, complete surveillance is a system of control, and it doesn't just stop there with cameras in China. They now have this social credit scoring system. Yep where they're assigning scores to people based on how good a citizen you are. That's right. To the state. See, this is social engineering. Oh, my God. Well, yeah. Fuck off. Well, yeah. If you're friendly to the state and you, you know, we can count on you to always say yes or yes, we will take care of you. That's right. But, you know, if you rock the boat. Well, you know, if you're just kind of, you may not even politically rock the boat, but let's say you have a habit of jaywalking. Mm-hmm. Or you don't pay your bills on time. Or you got divorced once or something. Yeah, you know, all these things can weigh against you. They'll have a point system. The point system. It's all done by computer. There's not a man sitting there figuring out that you and I are going to get a score. It's all done by computer, by algorithm, can't artificial buy a intelligence. Because of your score. You can't do this because of your score. Yes. may not get hired because of your score. Not only that, you might not travel. Maybe you can't buy a plane ticket or a train ticket. Talking about travel, I've been to Toronto several times. It's a gorgeous city. Microsoft wants to turn Toronto into a smart city. Smart cities are about making each individual part of a city smarter through sensors, infrastructure, and AI. Then connecting them all together through the cloud to operate seamlessly together. Once we do that, we can solve problems before they start, which is really the end goal here. There really is no end to what could be enabled with a smart city. It's all connected together to operate as one cohesive unit aimed at improving the lives of the citizens of the city. So you put sensors in your traffic lights to help to optimize route times and decrease congestion at given hours. Route optimization for your trucks for waste disposal. For water, you can use sensors to measure water quality and flow. All these different technologies taken together make for a better experience for you as a citizen and make the city government better able to accomplish their goals. Uplift is an urban pilot program that was developed by Urban Living Futures. There are three major elements to those programs. 
there are the cities and the companies within those cities that have challenges or aspirations around technology that innovators can help them to address. I think the introduction of IoT, it really is around trying to create an environment where not only our occupants, our tenants, our residents, to have an experience that is far easier and far more meaningful in ways that about free I think we can't really even envision today. Now it sounds exciting, but energy. in the hands of the wrong people, who knows what they could do with this? That's exactly the point. And the, the, privacy is, an, is completely dissolved in a smart city. Gone. Just gone. They will know more about you probably than you know about yourself. That's true. And they can use that information to control you. That's the problem. That's, that's where the resistance and kickback is coming. In Toronto in particular, the, the, uh, the Microsoft and, and uh, Google project up there to create a smart city has been, it's encountered incredible problems with people already, already that are fighting back against it on, on all kinds of different levels that you wouldn't expect necessarily. But see, the problem is these smart city designers, where did this stuff come from? Yeah. Are these your city council people that come up with this? Mayor? No. City manager? No. They don't. No. It's big data. Even those it's, workers we just saw, Pat, seem well-intentioned, those yes. people. But they work for Microsoft. They work for Amazon. They work for Google. They work for, you know, these big tech companies, Microsoft, and whatever. These are not elected representatives of the people, nor do they consult the people on what people want to do in their particular city. What will happen 20 years from now if all this is implemented? Much of it's going to fail. I'll say that right up front. The whole concept of public-private partnerships where you have a public entity like Toronto combining together with a private entity, whether it be Google or Microsoft, yeah. this is kind of a fascist type of a blending of state into business. When the business partnership goes south, George, the people can't leave. They're stuck. They're stuck. The corporations can waltz away and go find somebody else to take advantage of. <laughs> yep. They leave the city with the hubris. This has happened all over the planet with these companies, with these large companies time that do this. Time again. There are so many examples that just make your hair stand on end. But this is basically the whole concept of smart city is we're going to come in and save the day. We're going to create this great new thing that's never been tested before never been tried. We don't know if the people are going to like it at all. We don't know if it's going to be successful. But we're going to come in and turn your world upside down. We hope it's going to work. What would George Orwell have said about today? He would say this is the end result of a scientific dictatorship. He was right about 84. He was right. Maybe he was early. Orwell understood technocracy. So did Huxley. Yeah. Huxley, by the way, wrote his book, Brave New World, in 1932. Way before technology. Well, way you, remember, you remember that 1932 was, was the year that technocracy was at Columbia University. Yeah. And Huxley, a Brit, had a connection to the president of Columbia University. And he knew about this thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So... Scientific dictatorship has not been, it's not a new concept. But you go back and you read some of the futuristic stuff that Huxley wrote, 
And you think, man, how did this guy come up with this stuff? Pat, what are they afraid of? And when I say they, it's that big umbrella. Yeah. What are they afraid of with the people? Why do they want this control? They're afraid of you and me, George. They're afraid of people. Most of this crowd has never had any direct contact with real people that live in real cities mm-hmm. and real communities. And when, they, when they're confronted by people who take exception, and I have confronted many over the you know, last 40 years, when they're confronted, they go, I can't believe you're upset. I, I, I don't know, what, what are you thinking? Well, they think they are well, developing a utopia. Yeah, they think, well, of course it's good. Why would you protest? And for the most part, most of them are like deer caught in the headlight. They just can't believe that anybody would not go along with the program. You know, I've never quite figured this out, but I've seen this so many times. Back in the early writings of technocracy in the 30s, they wanted to convert North America into a technate, they called it. Right. It was going to be Canada, and they had a map. Mm-hmm. Canada, United States, Mexico, Mexico, all of Central America, and most of the northern part of South America. That was a technate that they were going to put all together. There's not one word I could find anywhere in their original information that said how they were going to talk these other countries into doing it. What, Canada's just going to roll over and play dead and say, hey, sure, we'll join your technique. Right, or Mexico. Mexico? Are you kidding? South America? I mean, are you going to go in and conquer them with militarily? Or, or what? They never brought that up. They never talked about that. This is the problem with Pollyanna dreamers. Mm-hmm. They don't think things through. And uh, you mentioned one of the goals. The, the main goal is resources. Is there another goal, though, behind it with these individuals? I mean, they, they put their pants on like we do. They cry, they eat, they sleep. What's their end game? You could, you could kind of guess from it. The end game, you could say, is, is control and power. They're bored, aren't they? But the power comes through the control of the resources. This has always been the case in sure. planet Earth. You know, you go back to Old Testament days when, when Job was alive, for instance. Job was... The rich, one of the richest men, if not the richest man on earth. Why? Well, he had sheep, he had cattle, he had herds, he had land, he had mines, he, he had, had thousands of them. Thousands of them. And he was a rich man. He, he didn't have a Federal Reserve in his back pocket. That just he had the resources. That's always been the measure of wealth. The people, the global elite that wanted to get all the money in the world, like through the Federal Reserve and you know chiseling off with inflation and so on. They've had success with that, let's be frank. They've chiseled away about 99% of the value of the dollar since 1913 when the Fed was created. What's left to rip off? Not much. At this point, the only thing left to go for are the resources of the planet. How could this backfire on them? How, what could go wrong for them? <clears throat> well, when, as and if, people figure out the magician's trick here, the, the, the fraud, if you will, right? it could be game over. But that's a big if, because most people still Never just absolutely don't understand what's going on. 
And they may never understand. And they may never understand. But on the other hand, you have, you know, how much do you need to know? In France, for instance, the yellow vests are upset because they, they don't like the carbon, carbon tax. Well, the carbon tax is directly related to what we're talking about. Sure. This has to do with control over energy. It has to do with sustainable development, which I believe is technocracy. And money. And money. And so they say, no, enough of that. Well, you could have any number of choke points come up in the next five to ten years around the world where people say, we're not going to do that. We're just simply not going to do that. One headline recently about the Yellow Vest said that they have gone out across the country and broken 60% of the speed trap meters on the, on the highway. That they put in. That they put in. This is a technocrat control mechanism. Yeah to read license plates and stuff like that. Take your pictures when you're driving. Give you a ticket, 100 bucks, 100 right. bucks. Right, and they send you a ticket by mail. The Yellow Jackets, uh, Yellow Vest people got an idea. These things are spying on us. We've had it. We're not gonna get, we're not gonna take it anymore. They went out, well, I don't know what they did. They took hammers or duct tape or something. Or whatever they did. Or whatever they did. And they, they deep sixed them. Well, I'm not necessarily for the destruction of private property, believe me, but you get the point. Yeah. How much do people need to know before they can start to resist? And how far can you push them? That's right. How far can you push them before they say no? Who pays for all this? We do. Out of we pay for it. In taxes and everything else. That's right. That's their plan, too? Invariably, you know, well, let's face it. Cities in America today, for a number of reasons, are flat out of money. All of them are. Almost all of them. Some of them are that close to bankruptcy right now. It's scary. But those cities are looking for money to do stuff. When a Microsoft comes along or a Google or, you know, an Amazon comes along, hey, we'll help you out here. You let us, you let us install our high technology. It's going to cost you this amount of money. Uh, we'll give you, you know, yeah. Give you a deal. You know, we'll take a little money from you, but uh, you give us this control over these things and... We'll get our fees out of the thing. Yeah. Right? We'll charge the people. Yeah. Well, the cities go along with it because they figure nothing we can do anyway. And they get into these unholy relationships, most of which I think in the future will fail. Right. And leave the cities doubly destroyed. I think you're right. I think you're right. I mean, there, there, there will come a time on this planet that the people will say enough is enough. Yeah. Far beyond what's happening in France, they will simply say enough is enough. And then what happens? Then we have a worldwide anarchy. What what happens? I know that's a difficult scenario to kind of think through. But and would an army yeah turn on its people? I really wonder. I spent nine years in the navy. Right. If I was given an unlawful order, I wouldn't have done it. But what do they do when you go to your military, your army, your Marines, and say, we've got uprising in the cities. They're looting. They're burning buildings. Shoot to kill. Would they do that? Some might. Some might not. I think we've seen uh, military all over the world flip-flop back and forth between you know different forces. Certainly in the Mideast has been the case where you know one group is fighting for this group today, next month, they represent a different crowd. Same military, same uniform, same guns, but they're serving a different master. 
You talked about uh, cryptocurrencies earlier. How prevalent do you think they will become? Sustainable development technocracy have to be financed. The United Nations has written extensively on this. They claim that sustainable development may take as much as five, excuse me, $50 trillion to implement over the next 20, 25 years. That's a lot of money. Cities don't have that money. Countries don't have that kind of money. Where's it going to come from? It's going to come from us? It's going to come, well, it's going to come from some different source. Good point. Either a different monetary system altogether, but something's going to be different than what it is today. Most of the people in the know at the United Nations and in the, the top financial world, the Goldman Sachs of the world, the Bank for International Settlements and so on, most of these entities say that so-called fintech, financial technology, advanced artificial intelligence working within the financial area, that fintech is going to be the financial tool that's used to finance sustainable development. Well, let's look at what fintech really is. If you've ever paid for something with your phone, transferred money using an app, or checked your bank statement online, then you're already part of a multi-billion dollar industry. It's called fintech, and it's changing economies around the world. Fintech is short for financial technology. Seems simple, right? Well, the term fintech includes a huge range of products, technologies, and business models that are changing the financial services industry. It refers to everything from cashless payments to crowdfunding platforms to robo-advisors to virtual currencies. So every time you donate to someone's Kickstarter campaign, that's fintech. Or if you transfer money to someone using Venmo, that's also fintech. And that's just the beginning. Here at a major fintech conference in Amsterdam, Hundreds of companies are trying to disrupt the banking and finance industries by changing the way we pay and borrow money. And investors are buying it. Global investment in the fintech sector has added up to nearly $100 billion since 2010. In 2017 alone, fintech investment surged 18%. Startups focusing on payment and lending technologies received the majority of those funds. It's not just startups that are getting into fintech. Some of the world's biggest companies, from Apple to Alibaba, are going big on it too. Just think of Apple Pay or Alipay. One reason for all of this investment, consumers are adopting fintech fast. One out of every three people across 20 major economies report using at least two fintech services in the last six months. China and India are leading the way, with more than half of consumers using services like money transfers, financial planning, borrowing, and insurance. Financial technology has filled a void for people around the world who don't have access to traditional banking services. In fact, it's estimated nearly 2 billion people worldwide are without bank accounts. Now, thanks to fintech, all you need is your phone to take out a loan or insurance. That's amazing. And it's it, happening. It is. Try
China is a good example of this today. 95% of all their commerce today is accomplished through a smartphone and electronic payment. I've used PayPal. Anyway, so um, let's come back to hear the rest. So uh, thanks for tuning in and uh, share and uh, wear a mask. And call Congress, 202-22431, and call the White House, 202-456-111. Give them help. I bought things from Amazon on my smartphone. We're back sure. with I the Trilateral Commission um, and Technocracy with Patrick Woods on Beyond Belief. Ever, yeah. ever. And it's easy. It's convenient. It's easy and convenient. It's scary. But the last part of this video that we heard here is the key to what's really driving this. And this, this is a core part of uh, sustainable development slash technocracy. But the 1.7 billion, billion unbanked throughout the world yeah. that are currently using cash or simply just don't have enough money or to have a bank account, that's a huge market for these people. MasterCard, card, Visa, whatever payment system you look at, an average of anywhere from 1.9 to 2.9 percent is taken off of every transaction to service fees, to service fees, right? That they pass on to us, of course. That's right. Now, if I buy a watch from you and I hand you a hundred-dollar bill, there's no fee. There's no fee. They don't want that. They don't want that. They don't make any money on that, and they can't track it. And they can't track it. And even worse, they can't track it. So. All of the unbanked world, and it's huge in America, it's huge in you know places like Africa and South America and so on, when they force these people into the digital domain, the digital world, they pick up not only control over those people because of the data, they pick up massive amounts of fees because every time something is done, click, 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 1%, 2%, 3%, whatever. Times billions of dollars. That's, that's, a, that's a machine better than a casino. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Every time you pull a lever. You know, that's why Jeff Bezos is the world's richest man right now. That's right. He was able to utilize the Internet. Started off as a book company, selling right. books on the Internet. Yeah. I know because our authors and guests on my show mm. would say, you can get my book on Amazon.com. And you'd go there, and that's all there were, books. Yes. And then he exploded. And this Alibaba company in China. And then he, he and the other oligarchs uh, exploited um, COVID. Just uh, begrudgingly giving them fucking $15 an hour. They can't even take a fucking pee break. And they have no fucking insurance or anything. Basically, everything is like gig work in America. All jobs are like gig work. So fuck them. Get, get some other thing going on. Figure out what else you can do. So you don't have to be beholden to the man. That's Trista's uh, tips and tricks and free advice. China is huge. <clears throat> yes, it is. Now tie that into... What we talked about in the beginning, the Trilateral Commission, talk about the relationship between like a fintech 
and the Trilateral Commission? Well, a lot of people, the, the probably common view of things like Bitcoin and blockchain technology and so on, so on, is that it was a like a consumer-driven, bottom-up sort of a thing, and that's really not the case. Um, the major players today in blockchain technology are the big banks, global banks, really, whether it would be J.P. Morgan, uh, Deutsche Bank, Chase, Chase, Bank. Uh, then the global institution uh, like World Bank, Bank for International Settlements, they hedging their IMF, right? All of these institutions are looking at ways to use blockchain technology to transform the financial system of our planet into a digital That's what system. They and to do away with cash. And to do away with cash altogether. That's frightening. Because the one thing they can do at, at a whim is take your digital money from you. Just like that. That's right. If you've got cash, you've got a couple hundred dollars on you, it's yours. It's yes. yours. And yes. I'm not going to take it away from you. Yes. But uh, digitally, you've got $200 in your bank account, and yep. tomorrow, it's gone. They took it. Right. What are you going to do about it? You have no recourse. Nothing. Nothing. And that's the problem. You know, we look at, if, if, if I could take one of those little thumb drives, you know, little, um, you know, 32 gigabyte plug and play things into your computer. If I could put an electronic wallet on that yep, and say, take all of the Bitcoin in the world, all of the Ethereum in the world, and put it on that chip, I theoretically I'd be the richest man in the world. No doubt. I have all this little thing. How much more does that thumb drive weigh after I put all that money on it versus before? Nothing. No, nothing more. No, it's not, all not digital. A, there's no weight. There's no substance to it. There's no expenses to it. It's just in somebody's computer brain. And if you could be the richest man in the world and it... Wouldn't that be interesting if uh, we woke up one morning and somebody had stolen all the money in the world? Ha <laughs> ha! That'd be a good Twilight Zone. On a digital, it's like a di uh, digital, okay, digital twilight zone. Wake up. All world's currency has been stolen. <laughs> uh, it's on somebody's fucking zip drive. Good joke too. If somebody had the ability to flip a switch on George Nori and take it all, and well, not necessarily take it, but let's just say, turn off your plastic. All right. Just turn off your ability yeah, to clear my, my anything. My cards aren't working. Hey, your card goes in you. declined. Well, I got another one declined. Well, I got another one declined. What's going on here? Yeah. It all is money. Can't do anything with it. Robbed. Gone. Gone. Control. So, you know, this kind of thinking, and, and by the way, some people in the world are waking up to this. Even the, the Swedes in Sweden started this whole idea of cashless society. Sure. 
They don't like it now. The Swedes themselves have finally concluded. What happens if the power goes out? You've got it. And it could. They could. X-flare from the sun or an EMP attack in the atmosphere. I know. Your power grid goes down. Your ATMs don't work. <clears throat> nothing works. And, and you want to say to them, well, duh. Of course, what happens when the power goes down? You all, you know, you're all just out to lunch. The great line from the movie Network from the anchorman Howard Beale. Just leave us alone. Give us our toaster and our television and our radio tires and just please leave us alone. That could happen too, where people just want to be left alone. So they can do anything they want to us, but let me stay in my little house and please leave me alone. Is that a real scenario? Leave me alone? Well, this is pretty much an art of man, I think, just naturally. Like, don't mess with me. You know, don't mess, don't mess with my money. Don't mess with my family, my kids. Don't mess with my <laughs> wife. for free speech. Just basically leave me alone. I think that's hardwired into the heart of man. When enough pressure comes from the outside, where people are messing with your wallet, they are messing with your family, and they're messing with your health, there's going to come a point where people just say, we're not going to do it anymore. And Patrick, of course, thank you for being on Beyond Belief. But as Howard Beale ended that movie network, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm not going to leave you with your television and your radial tires and your toaster. I want you to go to your window and scream you're as mad as hell, and you're not going to take it anymore. Nice. Network. Anyway, so thanks for tripping by. And, uh, yes. What can you do about it? You can do a lot. <clears throat> but, uh, yeah, of course, always start with you. And uh, meditate. Everybody should meditate or do some meditative activities. Okay? Check you later. Bye. <laughs>